Hello everybody and welcome to this edition of the Heart Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Paul Sainsbury, who is a consultant cardiologist from Bradford Royal Infirmary in the UK, and he's an expert on refractory angina. We're going to discuss his recent Education in Heart article all about refractory angina. Please feel free to share this podcast and subscribe and spread the word on social media. I hope you enjoy the interview. Perhaps you could start by introducing yourself, Paul, and telling the the heart audience uh, where you work and what you do. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Bradford Teaching Hospitals. I've been running a, a refractory angina service now for nearly 10 years. Um, and besides that, I'm just really a general cardiologist, having originally trained uh, as an interventionalist and then moved out of intervention and just basically ended up doing general cardiology and then refractory angina. Okay, and you've recently written a Education in Heart article which is called Alternative Interventions for Refractory Angina and that's with a couple of co-authors from Liverpool and Imperial College. Yes. Uh, um, so maybe we could start, Paul, by you telling us how we define refractory angina. And that's a really good point because I was just thinking about that. And really, that's the nub of everything, really. So do you define someone as having refractory angina if they have any angina at all? So is our goal when we treat angina to render patients entirely asymptomatic? Or is it that we render their angina to a level which it doesn't interfere with their quality of life and their daily activities of living. And I guess there's a real spectrum there and there's no real absolute sort of agreement on that. We, in the paper, we use the, the Mannheimer definition, which is essentially saying if you still have ongoing chest pain despite optimal therapy, be it surgical, interventional or medical, you're deemed as having refractory angina. But the frequency of that in itself hasn't actually been sort of defined or agreed on. And how common a problem is it? I mean, I guess this is another hard question to answer, but do you have any inkling about it? Well, we originally the figures that were always put around were around about 5% of the angina population are considered to have refractory angina. But the truth of the matter is we really don't know. Uh, we tried to give some estimation of this in in the paper itself. Um, what we what we try to do is if we if we assume that uh, quoting the Williams figure of about 6.7% of patients undergoing angiography having no re- revascularization option, uh, applying that to the nearly 250,000 angiograms performed in England, uh, we kind of worked out roughly that you'd be having around about 16,000 to 17,000 new cases a year of refractory angina. And that's just in just in England, not not even across the whole UK. No, that's right, just in England. So okay. it's one of those things I always say to patients is if you say to someone, do you still have angina? They'll say yes. More importantly, the question is, do you worry about your symptoms? Because I think really that's the key to it. It's patients who struggle with their symptoms based on anxiety. They're the ones you really need to identify and treat. Okay, and if I'm, let's say I'm a patient coming to your coming to your service um, it sounds very different from the typical national health service cardiology clinic that I do where you have about 15 minutes for a new patient <laughs> you you have a nice uh, a two-hour slot for each patient and you cover three different types of of interventions you I'll just list them briefly and then perhaps we can expand on it um, first sure. of all psychological and rehabilitation therapies 
secondly, uh, interventions with drugs and, and devices aimed at ischemia. And then thirdly, uh, pain modulation strategies. Yep. Would you be able to briefly talk about talk about those and sort of the order in which you approach things? Yeah. So the first thing we do is in the two-hour consultation, that's very much about establishing does this patient have angina uh, or do they have what I would term a chronic chest pain syndrome? So for us, angina, you're much more comfortable if you've obviously got evidence of ischemia and evidence of epicardial coronary disease. That's a, a no-brainer. Everyone would agree then that, that patient's symptoms are angina. The problem comes where you have patients who have epicardial coronary disease, but symptoms that don't really sound like angina, or patients who have evidence of ischemia without any real evidence of coronary artery disease. Um, it's very difficult picking between all of that and explaining that to patients. But essentially what we get them to agree on is that they have a chronic chest pain syndrome, which may be angina or may not be. And the key to it and how you're managing it is to understand what angina is and what it isn't. And then also how the body uh, deals with pain and how mood and how you behave and how you live your life also has an impact, not just on angina and pain, but in health in general. So that's the first thing that we deal with uh, in the clinic. And also it's quite important to where you have cases where the history really isn't compatible with angina. Is convincing them that they, they don't have angina and that they just have a, 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 a chest pain syndrome. So that actually takes up the bulk of the sort of first two-hour consultation. Within that, we do revise all their medication and review them and try and optimize therapies. But you have to understand that by this point, these patients have actually been in the cardiology sort of milieu for many, many years usually and have had virtually every sort of medication up titrated, down titrated. So there's usually very little that we can add in terms of obvious medication. Um, the one thing I do try and do is where patients say they've been intolerant of a medication, we always challenge that because often, as you know yourself with antihypertensives and so on, uh, it's not always the medication that upset them at the time. It's just been labeled as having that. So sometimes it's worth revisiting all the medications that they've had stopped in the past through intolerance. And then what, what would typically happen next once you're happy that, let's say, the, the diagnosis is definitely refractory angina, you have got ischemia um, uh, documented, uh, you've altered there, should we call them, uh, coming in through the front door medications. What would be the yeah. next, next approach after the psychological and, and rehabilitation has started? Well, the, then the next thing that we try and get all of them to do is to do these things called the foundation sessions. So um, they're four two-hour sessions, which are run as a group normally. That's what we do in Bradford uh, with other patients with a similar condition. It's run by a nurse specialist and a psychologist, and it follows basically uh, an education program that's delivered in four two-hour sessions. Uh, and that basically explores some of the themes that we talk about, about angina, how you manage angina, how you live with it, but also a lot around how you manage chronic pain syndromes and a lot of the simple practicalities. Um, we, we call that the foundation sessions a bit twee, but obviously it, to be effective with any treatment that you have, uh, one of the biggest problems you have in angina is that patients have developed so many misconceptions and anxieties about their health that you have to kind of get them on the on a level playing field and back to where you need them to build on top of that. 
So we do the four two-hour sessions with them. And then at the end of that, I reassess them. Um, now, for a lot of patients, what we find is just doing those sessions alone and being reassured, you know, getting the message across that stable angina in itself doesn't kill you, that angina, stable angina in itself doesn't damage your heart, uh, and that actually their overall prognosis, given that their LV function hopefully is good, is actually very promising. Mm. Uh, they usually feel very reassured. Um, they've got a much better perspective on things, having met other patients and spoken. The girls, the, the, the psychologists and the nurse specialists who run those are, are, are really fantastic. They just build a very strong relationships with the patients. Uh, and the patients are very good therapy for each other as well. Um, at the end of that, most of them, in all honesty, don't need anything else doing. They, okay. they, they feel reassured and they feel that they can manage their angina with a bit of support, which is what we usually give them. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting and some uh, lesson that I certainly wasn't aware of, the, the fact that you can just buy some really excellent psychological therapies uh, and rehabilitation can make a great difference to these patients, um, in a, in a, as you say, in a very tailored way. Yeah, and I mean, there is evidence to support that in the paper. We talk about a, uh, that we reference there a study looking at over 900,000 patients who, who, who have had sort of psychological import on the CBT based therapy and they've shown that, you know, GTM frequency drops, angina, uh, frequency drops, so quality of life improves. The problem with it is a very effective therapy, but obviously it takes time to deliver. And as you say, in the setting of a normal clinic, it's just not possible to do that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then for the very few patients that do need further intervention, what kind of things would you would you commonly uh, refer patients for? Well, uh, assuming... So we categorize them now into two different groups at this point. If you have clear evidence of ischemia, uh, then obviously we would look... Um, my priority is usually if you can revascularize patients, that's usually your best route to managing ischemia. Uh, usually by the time we've got to see them, that's pretty much been tried and tested in all respects. But occasionally, if, for example, you speak to another specialist, occasionally they might say, well, we could do that angioplasty. Or occasionally I have had patients who have been turned down for surgery locally uh, who I get operated on. Uh, at other centers so that's one option okay in terms of novel approaches um, if you've got ischemia in the anterior wall or the lateral wall we can offer a patient a coronary sinus reducer which is a wasted stent so it narrows the coronary sinus and basically maintains and improves uh, sort of subendocardial perfusion under the setting of ischemia. That's a very simplified version of it. Uh, generally speaking, that seems to improve anginal class, in my experience, by one class. Uh, occasionally, you get very good results with it, but I've never actually cured anyone with it. Uh, the advantage of the coronary sinus reducer is that actually everybody's coronary sinus is big, and so you can pretty much implant it in everyone. So that's one option. Another option that we sometimes use is EECP. Uh, that's the Enhanced Extracorporal Counterpulsation. Um, Those are the sort of inflating trousers. In the inflating trousers. Now, yeah. again, that is an hour a day, five days a week for seven weeks. That's 35 sessions. That's a big commitment in time. 
obviously patients travel to see us from all around the country, so it's not suitable for everyone. Again, we've seen some outstanding results with EECP in some patients, but not in everyone. And it's very difficult to predict who will respond and who won't. So again, that's a therapy that could potentially work, but isn't 100% reliable. If we were going down more of a simple managing pain route, then obviously TENS machine is very useful. We often use a lot of TENS machines. Stellate ganglion block, where appropriate, we often use as well. We don't tend to have to do much else beyond that. Spinal cord stimulators are now not not in fashion, and we never used them in the past either. Okay, that's interesting. Brilliant. Well, um, anything else you you'd like to to finish with, uh, Paul? I mean, are you overwhelmed with referrals? How many specialist centres are there in the UK? Is can you give us some sort of idea? Yes. So there's uh, three specialist centres in the UK. There's uh, Brompton Imperial. It's actually Brompton is the uh, is where the centre is in London, uh, Liverpool, and then obviously Bradford. Uh, we have a steady. We usually get referred anything between four and eleven patients a month. So that can be quite variable. Obviously, it's, it's the distance that patients have to travel to come and see us is a big issue. Mm. We're trying to get round that because we're actually launching a, a, a digital virtual service which will open up the whole uh, country to to being able to gain access to refractory angina service. So on the digital platform, you'll be able to basically do all the foundation sessions. We have them in video format now and in written format. And then you also have a live virtual link through to myself so that we can actually have a remote consultation. It's not as good as having the patient in the room with you, and it's not as good as having a group where patients all work together. But, you know, if you're in Exeter, then it's, you know, it's the best thing you're going to get. Absolutely. At least it's accessible. And that will be launched later on this year. That sounds a really interesting development um, and one I'll certainly keep an eye on. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, Paul. I will put a link to the fascinating paper, which uh, greatly expands on what we've discussed uh, in the show notes and uh, encourage everybody to go and download the paper. Thanks ever so much, Paul. My pleasure.